It does. Um, it certainly uh, reaffirms the point that we we do talk about a lot when it comes to sort of overall investing is that the short term gain doesn't necessarily always reflect what the long term outcome is, you know, likely to be. Um, and so, yeah, well, you, you might see these the volatility and the the prices spike for a whole bunch of assets short term, something like that. You can't help but think it that that, that trend is towards those lower. Uh, lower lower costs, lower prices. Welcome to the Exponential Investor Podcast. Want to be a better, smarter, more clued up investor? Well, you've come to the right place. We cover the breakthrough investment ideas you don't hear about in the mainstream to keep you on top of the mega trends and opportunities reshaping our world. Good morning. Welcome to another Exponential Investor Podcast. I am your editor, Sam Valkyrie, and I'm here with my co-editor again, as usual, Kit Winder. Uh, thanks for joining us, Kit. Um, I wanted to kick this off today um, with a question, actually, and I'll, I'll give it some context. Um, I mean, I, I start every one of these with a question usually, but let, let me start it with, a, with another question. Uh, so this week, um, the billionaire CEO of JP Morgan, uh, Jamie Dimon, had some critical things to say about Bitcoin. More specifically, he was talking at um, some banking event and questioned the uh, ability for Bitcoin to actually only ever have 21 million Bitcoin exist. And he asked the question, you know, how do we know that that's actually going to happen? Do you read the algorithms? Um and 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 basically said that he, that he and, and a lot of people at JP Morgan are skeptical of these these sorts of things. Now, um, I find what he said astonishingly ignorant because yes, we do read the algorithms when it comes to Bitcoin because we can read the code because it's open source. Um, but that's actually that's my question isn't necessarily related to that. Now you're obviously heavily involved in energy markets, uh, you know the, the the technology and the breakthroughs that are coming in that space. My question is this: How much weight do we give to people like Diamond uh, and others that sit in these ivory towers um, from a system that has served them very well that they are clearly interested in protecting for their own self-interests. Um, why, why, does, why does everyone seem to give weight to these people when it comes to breakthrough uh, and new ideas and technologies um, like, like cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and like green energy markets? I imagine there are a, a plethora of similar instances from people from big oil that have said similar things about the energy transition. How much should investors actually care about what these kinds of people have to say? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point. I'd say in the the energy markets, it's almost it's it's more clear the sort of difference between the incumbency and the group thinking. So I just read Jeremy Leggett's book, Winning the Carbon War, which is a sort of two year diary running up to Paris 2015. And it's brilliant, actually. It's a sort of first person account. And he's so high level that he's meeting all of the most relevant um, senior people who are involved in governments and corporates. And um, one of the things he talks about a lot is the sort of behavioral communal thinking within social groups and how this sort of leads people within oil companies, you know, as he says it, they love their families and their children and, you know, they're good people, they recycle, 
but and they kind of know that the energy transition is happening but then they go to work and keep doing what they're doing and they sort of there's this dissonance there and within the oil industry it just sort of creates its own belief system that is actually incredibly hard to break um and so that is now just very clear i mean anyone who is aggressively defending fossil fuel growth for the next decade or two is either being paid or they've mis misunderstood um or, or whatever so that's you can sort of almost pick out the or i'm quite cynical now about fossil fuel defenders really about you know when the texas energy crisis happened you looked at all of the things that sort of oil lobby oil lobbied republican politicians were tweeting and saying and it was just they just get 800 grand a year from fossil fuel lobby groups and that's all it is, you know? Yeah, I, I suspect that, um, like you say, there's 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 lobby groups and paid uh, people that, that are there to defend. The the, the point you, you, you raised um, before is actually something that, um, that, I, that I came across recently as well is where you say, um, you know, people that might work for some of these companies, uh, like you say, they go home, they recycle, they maybe have an electric car. <laughs> um, you know, they're doing the way they behave as to where they generate their income from um, are sometimes divergent um, with, which is, which is, you know, something that, you know, everybody, I guess, has to live with at some point when sometimes you have these internal conflicts. It's a very similar thing I heard um, last week. So last Thursday uh, and, and Friday, uh, I was at a conference in London, the Token 2049 conference, and uh, it was all about crypto, cryptocurrencies, the crypto economy, um, everything from like regulation to uh, uh, gaming, uh, blockchains, privacy, um, exchanges, decentralization of everything, you name it. And um, And one of the things that I found interesting was that they were talking a lot about the institutionalization of, of cryptocurrency and that, you know, you get these big organizations that are still quite reluctant to even just look at, let alone hold something like Bitcoin. And um, this, the, what they were saying was that now we're starting to see, uh, starting to just see things like pension funds start to sort of dip their toe into the game. But the interesting thing was, is that a lot of the people that work for these sorts of funds in their own personal existence are already well into this. They're already holding Bitcoin and they're already deep diving deeper into the broader crypto ecosystem. But when you look at these giant organizations and the structures that they exist under, it's not always such a, a simple thing to sort of adjust the course of the ship. Um, and and I, I very much expect that, that what you, you probably see something similar is that when you are dealing in energy markets and you look at the big players like Shell and BP, and we know they they sort of have a very large foot in the, the existing camp, but they also do have a foot in the transition itself as well. Do you, do you see those big companies, do you see them writing the ship? Do you, do you think that, like, for instance, do you see a company like BP in the future not having any oil and gas assets at all? I think it's, I think it is possible I think the um, the economics are are so clear now for the fossil fuel industry that demand is going to fall off over the next thirty years. It has to. Um, it's going to be socially demanded and politically mandated um, and economically viable to move to cheaper alternatives. So when our vehicles are powered by electricity, 
electricity from renewables will massively undercut the sort of gas and coal-fired alternatives. Uh, and then that's how electricity starts competing with oil, you know, on the roads, for example. And um, and so if you look at BP's balance sheet, they say they have, you know, X amount of reserves of oil and they're going to sell it for this much, they predict. And so they value their company at, at Y. But in reality, I mean, Carbon Tracker is really the company that that pioneered the concept of stranded assets, which is that almost all of these fossil fuel companies think that they have X amount of value locked up underground, but they won't be able to sell it. Um, and maybe they'll, you know, they'll be 20% or 40% stranded assets, which makes them so much less valuable. Um, and as all oil demand falls, who's going to be able to sell oil is probably the question. Who's going to be able to ride out the, the fall in demand? And it's pretty simply the lowest cost producer, which is, to be honest, Saudi Arabia. They can pull oil out of the ground for less than $10 a barrel. So if oil prices, you know, oil prices will trend towards that figure. And once demand has peaked, volatility increases. So what we're seeing at the moment is oil price volatility. It's like a fish that's come out of the water. It's dying, but it started flapping. And, you know, volatility increases as death arrives. Um, for these things, we saw it with coal, you know, even more dramatically. Global coal demand peaked in 2013, and now it's spiking. And everyone's like, oh, maybe this is a whole new thing for coal. It's not. It's just, you know when your asset hasn't been growing in eight years, you don't invest properly in supply chains and distribution chains and, you know, demand and supply get mismatched more easily. Um, we'll start seeing similar things with oil, I think. So I think on this podcast, one time before I said we could see $300 oil, but the the grand trend over the next 30 years is towards probably between 10 and $20 because A, that's the only way it can be in any way competitive with renewables and B, um, it'll be the lowest cost producers who are selling and undercutting everyone else when, you know, I mean, the IA predicted demand will fall from 96 million barrels per day last year to 25 or 24, I think they said. Mm. So a quarter of what it is today. And yeah, the cheapest producer will do the selling. It does. Um, it certainly uh, reaffirms the point that we, we do talk about a lot when it comes to sort of overall investing is that the short term gain doesn't necessarily always reflect what the long term outcome is you know, likely to be. Um, and so, yeah, well, you, you might see these the volatility and the, the prices spike for a whole bunch of assets, short term, something like that. You can't help but think it, the, that that trend is towards those lower, uh, lower, lower costs, lower prices, um, which is yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I mean, if you want to, if we want to talk about volatility, then um, obviously, you know, the crypto markets are something that I've been looking at closely uh, for some time, and, and and that certainly has its. Uh, has its moments of ups and downs, and it's almost like the inverse of oil. Is, is that the, some of the short-term fluctuations down don't necessarily reflect that the the long-term view that uh, when you factor in demand and supply, uh, you know, demand increasing, supply constraints. Um, which if Mr. Diamond bothered to what actually, supply constraints, Sam? How do you know? If Mr. Diamond <laughs> bothered to read the algorithms, as we all do, you would know that there there. Are, you know, defined supply. Well, I do. I, I have to say, I, I sympathize with him only on one point that it's not bothering to read the algorithms. It's a capability issue, not an, not a, not an effort issue. Um, he's not lazily thinking, oh, maybe I should get around to the algorithms. Like me, he's thinking, you know, what, what, what am I looking at here? Um, but I think your, your point earlier was interesting. I mean, Bill, if you ever see a, a headline that says Bill Gates backed clean energy venture, you'll probably see that ESS, a battery company, launched this week, and I think it went up 125% on its second day of trading or something crazy. It just spiked 
And he is a classic example of a name that carries undue weight. I mean, within the energy transition sort of space, uh, I've done three series of the Beyond All interviews. I've met incredible, unbelievably brilliant people who have such an, uh, a brilliant understanding of how these things are playing out. And I don't think he matches up against those people in this space he clearly is so brilliant and uh, I think it's just that slight Nassim Taleb point of expertise in one field does not guarantee it in another and he has good ideas but he talks about a thing called the green premium where you know it's going to be so expensive to do a transition so how can we narrow that green premium to make it as cheap as possible but I think the more interesting ideas are how uh, you know disruptions in energy food and transport are all going to compound one another to make actually the transition just cheaper than what came before, that the new system is going to save us money rather than costing us money. Um, and I think he's actually sort of behind on that. And he doesn't, he's not always backing the companies that we think are the best companies. So it's, he's, you know, he's good, but he's not the best, but his name gets put on things and they go up. And and, and he brings, so he brings a great amount of money through his uh, venture investment yes, vehicles as well. And so I think, that, I think that's where people get, sometimes get confused is that sometimes these decisions and the ultimate um, investment vehicle isn't necessarily those who you might think it is. And and, and the, like you say, uh, expertise in one area. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure Mr. Diamond is an expertise in complex financial products uh, that nobody understands or bothers to read the terms and conditions for. So, you know, I'm sure he's an expert <laughs> in his field. Can anyone read the terms and conditions, Sam? Are wow. they visible? Do, Do we, we read the terms and conditions? Maybe, no, we don't. Um, which is why some of those complex financial products we maybe you know should avoid. But the thing is, is that something like Bitcoin is 100% transparent, uh, and that's that's uh, that's something that our readers may have seen a bit of this week uh, coming out of Exponential Investor and from myself. Uh, some some talk about uh, an upgrade that's coming to Bitcoin's core network, which anybody can go and see. I might add, you can if you if you're technically minded and want to look at the code, then feel free to do so. Uh, and you may see or may have already seen a uh, a webinar, a broadcast from myself uh, and my colleague and friend Boaz Shoshan talking about this great upgrade to Bitcoin's network and what it's going to do, not just for Bitcoin but for the wider crypto ecosystem. So I think that's something that um, if you haven't seen that yet, um, I'm sure we'll have a link uh, somewhere on around near this video that you'll be able to click on as usual uh, to check out that broadcast. Um, the, the thing about the thing about it that, that is, it is very exciting is that it's an absolute certainty. It's locked in. Uh, I think we're only about a month away from it activating uh, and it could unlock a, a tremendous amount of wealth in the crypto ecosystem. So make sure you check out that video where we discuss about Bitcoin's next great upgrade and the wealth that it could unlock for investors. But uh, uh, I think we've probably gone on for long enough this week, Kit. Uh, like I say, uh, great to get your insight as, as usual. Um, I think a good takeaway here for investors is that when you see these big names, these billionaires, these titans of industry talking about things, uh, you might want to check that they actually know what they're talking about before you place any great weight on their comments. And if you find that they don't know what they're talking about, which can sometimes be the case, um, 
you know, take what they say with a very small pinch of salt or a big pinch of salt. What is it? Is it a large pinch of salt? I can't, I don't know, whatever. Take it with a pinch of salt. Uh, any closing remarks you'd like to drop in as we wind up this week, Kit? Yeah, well, I think just, you know, it was an interesting point you made about Diamond. I'd, I'd say I think the reason it gets so much attention um, is probably not that everyone thinks that what he says is necessarily right, but what he says does matter. I mean, he's one of the most successful banking CEOs of the last decade. He has done a brilliant job with JP Morgan. So like he is so powerful that his his views might affect the market in future. So it pay it, you know, it still pay, pays to think about what he's saying because it might affect how JP Morgan goes about the crypto or whatever, but it doesn't mean he's right as you say. Um and yeah, on the on the webinar that you mentioned there, you know, as as regular listeners will know, I'm not the, the crypto expert of the two of us, but I am interested and I am an investor. And I have watched it and I have read up around the the upgrades that you're talking about and the things that they're going to do. And I, you know, can genuinely say quite honestly that it's about as excited as I've been about crypto in in over a year or two or maybe even in my whole short <laughs> interest span or life. Um, it really is. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's exciting. Um, and I do encourage people to go and watch it because, you know, then you won't make silly mistakes like Jamie. Exactly. Then you'll know. You'll know more than Mr. Diamond and, and probably, you know, a lot of statistics are made up and I'm going to make one up here. But you'll probably know more than 90% of the traditional financial uh, industry around cryptocurrency as well. So it pays to, to know what is happening. Uh, it pays to know what it means. Uh, and it can certainly put you ahead of the uh, average banker, so to speak. So thanks again, uh, Kit, for joining me. Thanks again, everyone, for watching, for listening, however you are consuming this media through your ears or eyes and or both. Um, we'll be back with you again next week for another Exponential Investor podcast. Bye for now.